0: Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Baptist Church. Uh, this is Theology Breakfast. This is a time where I read through classic works that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ have written throughout the course of history. Uh, and I've been reading through this volume here. It's John Calvin's sermons on 1 Timothy. Uh, this is sermon number 17, uh, and it is pivoting from praying for those in authority Uh, knowing that God desires all to be saved, transitioning to um, the Apostle Paul uh, exhorting Timothy that he desires all, that all men uh, everywhere would lift holy hands in prayer as opposed to fighting and pursuing anger. And then now he's pivoting over to think about um, uh, exhorting, exhorting women in the church, first in regard to dress and demeanor, but then also in regard to not exercising authority in the teaching office of the church uh, as teachers and elders. Uh, so this passage this morning here is on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And here's the text. Likewise, also let women dress decently with modesty and discretion, not with braided hair or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with clothes suitable to women who by good works show their fear of God. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Let her remain silent. That's First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. We said this morning that Paul first tells us of the privilege given to us by God, which allows us to come to him and to address him personally in prayer. Then he adds that we must prepare ourselves for all holiness, for it is not right that we should bring our filthiness before God. We must make every effort to be holy. Now holiness does not consist in ceremonies as under the law, but in spirit and in truth. And as the apostle had earlier commanded men to lift up pure, clean hands to heaven, so now he says that if women are to enjoy the gift of being numbered among God's daughters, of coming to him as their father, and of having him as their refuge, they must dress modestly and be suitably clothed, not with braided hair, and with those small oddities which women have, nor expensively with gold or precious stones. For the one word, pearls, is meant to stand for all such things. But let them dress in a way befitting women who by good deeds profess to fear God. Paul's purpose is therefore clear. We might, perhaps, think that he is wasting his time on mere trifles which are not worth mentioning and that he is ignoring much more important virtues which deserve attention. We might also wonder why he speaks of women's dress but not of men's. The fact is that Paul here is pointing out a fault to which women are naturally inclined and very much addicted, the desire to show off and to impress to be noticed from afar. This is a common failing among women, which is why Paul makes particular mention of it here. Certainly, if a woman refused all adornment and dressed herself as discreetly as possible, this would be all that was required. Yet, Paul does not stop there. For as we saw, he ends by saying that women should dress in such a way that they openly profess their fear of God by their good works. It is not then simply a matter of dresses, skirts, and such like, but Of their overall manner of life. Paul's message is that if women would call upon God purely, they should not only bear the name of Christian, but should actively demonstrate the fact by good works which they have been taught in God's school. Let us consider what is meant by, quote, good works before we look at other points in detail. That way we will learn much more about Paul's purpose and thus grasp what he wants to teach. Just as he commanded men to lift up pure hands in prayer, so he declares that women too should profess their faith and their fear of God. Uh, that sh- should profess their faith and fear of God, but by good works. When he speaks of testifying to our faith, it is as we said this morning: we cannot call upon God unless we are grounded in His Word, and are well taught. Thus, women need to turn to God, just as men do. They must be taught the gospel. God indeed makes no distinction between men and women when he brings the message of salvation to them. He intends this gift and treasure to become common, or to be common to both. As we read in Peter, quote, The kingdom of heaven is bestowed on all alike, 1 Peter 3, verse 7. God desired that men and women should be equal partners in this respect. Observe in the first place, then, that women are not exempt from the need to be taught God's word And those who have sought to deprive them of it are thieves, worse, sacrilege scoundrels. Since God calls women to receive teaching from his sacred lips, let them not be negligent about it. Let them know that since God has done them so great an honor, it is only right that they should study hard in order to benefit as much as they suitably can. In the second place, they are to confess their faith by good works. Paul Paul's words imply that it is not enough to be taught of as a Christian, but that our life must demonstrate whether we are believers. As a test of faith, we must show that we have good works. This will prove that we do not idly chatter about God's word or pretend to believe it, but that we have truly accepted uh, accepted it and that it has a living root within us. This is something which men and women have in common. Nevertheless, when Paul refers to women in this text, he compels men even more to make a declaration of their faith. For if excuse can be made for anyone, it can most certainly be made for women rather than men because of their infirmity. Well, we might say, we have to support these weak, poor creatures. Poor, weak creatures. Unquote. But if women are without excuse, who give no sign that they have been duly taught God's word, and that their life matches their profession, so that the Holy Spirit condemns them here, what can be said of men? Do they not deserve to be condemned twice over? When we call upon God's name, we are no better than frauds, unless by good works we demonstrate our faith and show that we have not received the gospel in vain. Think for a moment of the times we are living in. We see the papists who are suffering God's punishment because although claiming to be Christians... They lead utterly dissolute lives. We should not be surprised if such poor souls are so totally confused given their ignorance of sound and wholesome doctrine. Even so, they will pay dearly for having misused God's name. But what of us? We boast that we are reformed in faith and that the word is always on our tongues. God has been supremely generous in giving us access to the genuine message of the gospel and in rescuing us from the depravity and evil in which we once lived. Our life should therefore shine as a light. If, however, we have the gospel on our lips, but lead lives which are vile, willful, and wicked beyond measure, are we not storing up terrible retribution for ourselves by taking God's holy name in vain? Let us remember, then, what it means to confess our faith according to this verse. It is not simply the tongue that speaks our whole life must answer too, as Paul points out when he asks us to profess our faith by good works. Now, if it is true that we must profess our faith or else fail to demonstrate the Holy Spirit's power and work in us, we can only conclude that those who deny God by their works make it all too plain in the sight of men that they are faithless. There is no room here for any kind of plea that many people make, Quote, honestly, I think that I'm a good Christian as anyone else. Yet look at their life, and it will prove them false. As Paul says, they deny God by their evil deeds, Titus chapter 1, verse 16. That then is one point. Having spoken of a woman's duty to profess her faith, Paul next declares that her dress should rightly match her profession, as much as to say, if a woman dresses as a trollop and is wanton in her demeanor, clothing, and adornment, is there any contradiction here? Should we expect this of a woman who makes such a profession? No, no. So because women should bear witness to the to the faith by good works, it follows that they should dress soberly and with restraint. Nevertheless, to repeat what was said earlier, Paul is not concerned with dress as such, as if that was all he asked of women to the exclusion of other necessary virtues. He's referring here to a fault which they they are all too fond, the care they take over personal adornment in the hope of being noticed from afar. Without a doubt, to try to prescribe definite rules regarding women's dress would scarcely be possible. It is true that authorities in charge of public order have sometimes been obliged to impose a measure of control. There have always been examples of overindulgence, and women have been so passionate about it that use had to be made of penalties and punishments, without which nothing could have been done. This shows that women's craving for adornment is like a savage beast, which must be bound with ropes and chains. Hence magistrates, though pagan and unbelieving, brought in various laws, and magistrates nowadays who permit extravagance on so grand a scale should be ashamed when they allow more freedom than the heathen did however we ourselves cannot lay down a law which says that one thing is forbidden and another allowed or which would cover every detail we may certainly arrive at a principle which is valid over all but where would we be if we tried to define every single item of women's dress to do a thorough job right down to the last pin would be impossible we must be realistic here and consider those faults which God has actually forbidden, and those which he is content to simply rebuke. At any rate, we can, as has been said, grasp the essentials of what the, his word teaches us. So it is said that women are to dress decently. The word used by Paul has the sense of decorousness. His aim is to reproach women for the foolish and willful passion which drives them for for they do not think that they are properly adorned unless they are overdressed thus when women wish to deck themselves as the fancy takes them they go too far looking for glamour and empty show and fired by ambition and vanity paul on the other hand indicates that whatever is superfluous in women's adornment is mere dissembling of god's uh dissembling which god condemns They disguise themselves as with a mask and array themselves in men's attire. This is what the apostle meant when speaking of the elaborate dress we see in women. There's a footnote here. It says, as his following comment reveals, Calvin here is thinking of the entertainments in vogue in the 16th century European courts, including the French, where the mask and lavish costumes worn by both sexes were used to disguise the wearer's identity for purposes of play, dalliance, and self-promotion. It is as if he is thinking, I know how much women, when left to their own devices, love excessive adornment. It is merely rubbish in God's sight, so they ought to dress and adorn themselves differently. How so? He uses two words, one of which means decorousness or bashfulness, and the other, self-control, sobriety, or modesty. Here, Paul puts his finger on two failings, to which women are inclined, and which are more or less the two sources of all the extravagance which is found in every age and which still exists today. What is it that provokes women to love adornment and to surround themselves with glittering display? There are two reasons. Ambition, that is pride and arrogance, and vanity, the wish to be noticed and to appear always beautiful. These things are often associated with an even greater evil, They do not seek to please only their husbands, which is the excuse they make. They also seek to use them as lures to attract others, as many of them do. These, then, are the two failings criticized by Paul. In the process, he provides us with a good and effective remedy for correcting every sort of excess and and every extravagance which is found in women's dress. We begin with the word modesty. Paul insists that women must not be brazen, nor mannish, nor, in a word, unchaste. Instead, they must know the virtue which best suits them, modesty, so that they avoid showing off or making a spectacle of themselves. If women were like that, there is no doubt that much of the nonsense and silly frippery uh, that we see would be done away with. They would not need to ask continually, Will earrings do, or such and such a covering for my head, or braided hair? Should I wear gold or something else? There would be no need for any of that, because a woman would tell herself, I must be modest, in obedience to God I must be discreet, for that is the adornment of a godly woman. If women thought like that, it is certain that all extravagance would vanish, as I said. What then? Women these days are wilder than ever. If, above all, we were to visit these princely courts, we would be hard put to it to tell the women from the men. Of course, the men on their side are just as bad. They dress in women's clothes and women in men's, as if everyone had conspired to turn the natural water upside down. Then, too, there is this craze for glamour. Why? It is something like a signboard. No sign is displayed before a tavern unless the door is open to all comers. Thus women who adorn themselves in order to attract the admiring gaze of men are, in a sense, laying out their nets. It is as if with their bodies they keep an open tavern. Admittedly, not all women do this. It is, however, a general trend so that it is hard for such stylish and alluring displays to avoid the taint of the brothel even if outright immorality, does not always follow. So when Paul speaks of modesty and discretion in correcting this one fault, he does away with all the extravagance which so excites women, and and, and there is no end to it. Need I say more? Now, if this willful obsession were merely purged, women would surely dress modestly, and we would see no more of dissembling. Imagine, here is a woman decked out like a painted idol. Nowadays, we get, uh, now, nowadays all we get is cosmetics, gold trimmings, false wigs, and the like. And with them, we see much dazzling ostentation that when a Diana comes forth in such a ray, she appears bent on defying all shame, all modesty, indecency. Another footnote down here says, The allusion to Diana, legendary goddess of the hunt, would not have been lost on at least some of Calvin's hearers. Diane de Poitiers, mistress of the reigning French king um, Henry II, was frequently depicted in the guise of a beautiful huntress. She was for many the archetype in the, uh, of, of the insolent seductress. Like a whore, she seems to can turn the page she seems to say see I am like a bitch in heat I have no shame and I don't care if anyone knows how depraved I am now if women observed the rule of modesty none of this would happen they would not go about decked in gold and with their hair uncovered in short they would not dress so richly as to insult the modesty and decency which Paul here commends If only, as I said, all this were done away with. But, as we see, women have yet to learn the lesson, despite their claim that they are Christians. Nor would we say that these things are indifferent, as many do, in a sly attempt to excuse themselves. Has not God said, they ask, ask, let each of us be free uh, to choose how we dress? We must bother uh, we must bother about small details or fuss or uh, over f- or, or fuss over such trifles as collars or sleeves, wondering which are beyond the pale anyway, they are not only simply adornments for the body, so you think that freedom can only exist in the absence of self-control. Think of a man who is able to spend his wealth but who manages it in such a way that he can live off it without wasting what he has. He is perfectly free, yet keeps his wealth in his own hands. But would we give a child wealth to do as he pleased when he had no idea how to handle money? No, it would be kept for him until he came of age. Should a madman be allowed to manage even his pennies, however rich he was? Would he be left to enjoy his wealth as he thought fit? Again, no. Let us learn then. Since God has graciously given us freedom in such things, in dress, in food, in drink, let us learn, I say, to be moderate in all we do, and may it serve to keep us in check and to be a sort of sentinel over us. That is one thing to bear in mind. In the second place, Paul speaks of ambition and pride, for women may dress as harlots without excessive extravagance. A woman may not wear an expensive dress, or gold, or precious stones, yet she may still go too far. How is that? By behaving unchastely, wantonly, and provocatively. That is the first fault. The second is when women, though modestly attired and lacking the air of shamelessness, of which we spoke, nevertheless display a pertness and a presumptuousness, which say, let everyone know how well off I am. So a woman may dress simply, with none of the mincing ways and fripperies uh, which we mentioned earlier, yet she will not escape God's judgment. Why is that? Because if this empty show we spoke of is a sin to be condemned, what shall we say of pride? What of the haughtiness which we see when women make a point of showing off? There, then, is the second fault we need to note. It is not enough for women not to be too wanton in their dress so that there is no offense to God, they must also be self-controlled and discreet, curbing all ambition, pride, and boastfulness. However, to repeat what I said already, to try and scrutinize all this trumpery uh, from slippers to head coverings is an impossible task. Every woman must look to herself and think, I may not be silly enough to want to adorn myself and attract attention, but I may be prone to pride so that I get a reputation for dressing more smartly and expensively than others. Let every woman take heed to herself and think carefully about these two faults, for the Holy Spirit knows full well how to reform us. He points us, then, to these two sources, pride and vanity. If it were possible for us to guard against such ills, extravagance would be would surely be a thing of the past, and we would no longer witness the false gloss we see uh, around us. That, in short, is another thing to remember. Now, if these are duties enjoined on women, they are even more enjoined on men. If the faults which Paul condemns were uh, somehow tolerable, we would have no excuse women more readily than men. It is, therefore, clear that God, who is the appropriate judge, uh, what he has to say about these things. Men must learn to dress soberly, And with restraint so as to banish pride and affectation pride i say which means that we no longer want to preen ourselves on our elegant attire and to look a cut above everybody else we should avoid those petty flourishes when we use that we use when we show off strutting like peacocks with wings outstretched these faults in us must be corrected for nothing displeases god more than pride and the lofty ambition which says, I'll show people who I am. When they see me, they'll know I'm a person of substance and standing. Now that is no small fault, for when we are puffed up and presumptuous, it is impossible for our stupid self-obsession not to spring from this source. So we should not call them small and paltry sins. We should weigh them in God's balance and judge their true worth and importance. We read that when God severely reproved the women of Isaiah's time, he threatened them with dreadful punishment, and rightly so. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 to 24. The prophet himself, although he was not prying into women's dressing rooms, and looking at every piece of trumpery, nevertheless makes a detailed list of all their adornments, using a score of terms to describe all the useless items which he saw on them. Further, he warns that God will shave their heads and will send them away bald, and that he will cut their dresses up to their thighs to reveal their wickedness and to hold them up to mockery and contempt. When God utters such stern threats and derides women who overdress and who spend most of their time seeing to their attire, he takes note of such things and enters them, as it were, in his judicial register. We therefore learn... That when such extravagance prevails among us, unless we are willing to correct it, God must employ a more forceful remedy. So, Paul is right to stress this point. It has always been a human failing, and especially since it has its origin in the two things which God most abhors vanity, when we become drunk on our own folly, and pride, when we adorn ourselves in order to be seen and admired. That being so, all of us, both men and women, can now appreciate what this passage says to us. What does it say to women? Since the Holy Spirit speaks directly to us, not only here, but in other parts of Scripture, the third chapter of the first letter of Peter, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4, through or the verses from Isaiah already quoted, we see why God urges us to be sober and restrained. It is because we are too much given to excess in the way we dress. And because this is a fault which is not easily corrected, therefore knowing what ails us, we must look for the cure. When women are told that they are afflicted by pride and conceit, let them fight bravely against them and acquire the virtues which Paul mentions here, modesty and self-control. Modesty in that they should be discreet and decent, keeping themselves in check and refusing to show off or to attract attention, and self-control, that is, humility, avoidance of the haughtiness and ambition which are contrary to the discipline and sobriety which Paul commends. Men also, for their part, should be clear about the purposes of dress. There are two purposes, decency, so that we cover ourselves in proper and seemly fashion, and necessity, so that we are protected from heat and cold. When necessity is concerned, there is a good rule to follow. Just as eating and drinking are for our sustenance and nourishment, so clothing is to stop us heedlessly exposing ourselves to heat and cold. As to decency, we go beyond the limits and seem bent on defying God himself. What is decency for? Except for man's sin, we would not be ashamed to be naked. Why then do we carry our shame about with us? Only because God put his mark upon us, as one might brand a criminal, as much as to say, Your crime is written on your brow. Thus our Lord impressed on men's and women's bodies a shame and degradation, which cause us to cover ourselves up. Hence, when men and women seek to dress lavishly and fan their wings like peacocks, are they not resisting the order of nature, defying God and showing that they are not ashamed of their sin? That is something we should surely think about. We should also recall what is written in Peter, that ours is an inner adornment. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. For if we really wanted to adorn ourselves in the sight of God and of his angels, we would have little time to worry about adornment for the body. Those whose chief concern is with dress and finery plainly show that they have little wish to cleanse it and to keep it healthy. If, then... We want to be decent in our manner of dress. What must we do? We must think of Peter's words about how we should be garbed in the, the sight of God. First Peter chapter five, verses five through eight. We are to clothe ourselves with humility, temperance, sobriety, meekness, patience, and all such virtues. Once we are free of our faults and evil desires, and the and evil desires, the Holy Spirit truly reigns within us. These are the adornments to which Scripture so often refers, as when the church is said to be adorned with precious stones and decked with nothing but silver and gold. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 10 to 13. What this means is that God desires us to be adorned with the gifts and graces of his Holy Spirit. These should be the things for which we strive. Take note of this, and you will have no trouble avoiding the extravagance, beloved, by worldly People who have nothing better to do. It should therefore be clear that all those men and women whose sole aim is to be smartly dressed are careless of their souls, having no concern to adorn themselves in God's sight or in their inmost soul. This, as I have said, is the lesson we must learn. We learn also from Scripture that our Lord has not left us destitute. Not only has he promised to clothe us with the gifts of his Holy Spirit, but he has given us Jesus Christ as our adornment. It is with him that we are to be clothed. Romans chapter 13 verse 14. If we are fully convinced of this, it will be easy for us to pass through this world without becoming entangled in pointless superfluity. And when we are rid of these two evil roots, there will be neither excess nor wastefulness we will be content to be clothed with the gifts and graces of the Spirit of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our real adornment. Having therefore spoken of women's dress, the apostle now adds, let them learn in silence and quietness with all submissiveness. He insists on this point because there are many women who think they are cleverer than men and thus that they would be more assertive, that they should be more assertive. The foolish ambition is often to be seen despite being contrary to nature. So, having of one fault much in evidence among women, Paul adds another. He then proclaim, or proceeds rather to explain why women should be quiet and why they should learn without openly usurping authority. For the moment, it is enough to note what, in his view, needed to be put right in, in women and what they ought to especially avoid. Paul is like a physician who, seeing the root of the problem, directs his attention to it. If a man should seek advice about a headache or some other ailment, the physician will look for the cause and prescribe suitable remedies. In the same way, Paul, having corrected women's vanity about their dress, now goes on to correct the pride that they show wishing to appear at their best. It is also very likely, as we see in the case of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, that there were women in those days who behaved most badly. On the pretext that God had honored them by giving them his word and by calling them to the same inheritance of life, they believed that they were no longer subject to men. Now, if this boldness was already apparent among the women of Corinth, it was no less true that in Ephesus and the surrounding regions women were similarly brash and presumptuous as we will see when we go further into Paul's text we may assume that they were no less obsessed with clothes for we know that the province of Asia was much uh, the province of Asia was much g- given to extravagance and that dress was far more elaborate af- a far more elaborate affair than it is among us in Geneva there That was why it was important that a further remedy be applied. Accordingly, Paul commands women to learn in silence with all submissiveness. It goes without saying that men must heed this lesson just as much as women. They are to learn calmly and willingly, for we are all taught by God. Thus, anyone who will not learn to make good use of what he is taught cannot bear the yoke of Jesus Christ, since he refuses to be part of his flock. For if we... Our sheep, we must listen to our shepherd's voice. And it is on those terms that Jesus Christ calls us to himself. All our lives we are to be good scholars in, this school, in his school. It is not only women, then, who must learn. Men also have their part. And anyone who thinks that he is wise enough not to need instruction is a fool or worse, a madman. To be truly wise is to know that we are ignorant so that we need to grow stronger and stronger through good teaching. We should never think that women are told to learn. Men are in a different position. No one should imagine that he is above this rule. For example, my office is to teach, but I also must learn like everybody else. I'm no different from the common run of men, as if I had no need for Jesus Christ to teach me woe to me if i go into the pulpit and preach the message of, message of salvation but gain nothing from it myself hence those who speak and those who listen must all be taught in common for women however there is a separate condition they must learn but they cannot teach men therefore add, or paul rather adds therefore adds the words in silence with all submissiveness men of course must also be submissive and with quiet and tranquil minds, must profit from God's word. For we will not all uh, be called to the work of teaching. It is enough if those who teach are fairly few in number, and if the rest listen in silence. If there are some who are so arrogant that they cannot bear to be taught, let them take Satan as their teacher. He will blind and bewitch them so as to make them completely senseless. Observe, then, that if we would be worthwhile scholars in God's school, men as well as women must have the, the spirit of submission and quietness of which we spoke. But women, as we said, must recognize that God requires additional obedience on their part. They are not to exercise the office of teaching nor meddle with it in any way. Why should that be? As promised, we will discuss the reasons later. Let women be content to know that here... It is the Holy Spirit who speaks. He's going to preach on this, and I think, the following sermon. Order and authority. Yeah. If women set out to teach, by what right will they do it? If they are not sent by God, we must reject them and regard them with abhorrence, just as we would men. For if we will not hear a man who has not been called by God and who has no definite vocation, What shall we say of women who are entirely excluded? That, in a word, is the tenor of this passage. The rest will follow. So although Paul speaks here particularly to women, men must too benefit from this instruction. We all have something to gain, for all of us are warned of the need for sobriety and restraint, so that we act decently in the matter of dress, as in everything else, and so that we might walk meekly, not swerving from our obedience to God, but daily growing in the knowledge of His Word, since He graciously consents to be our teacher. Now let us cast ourselves down before the face of our good God, acknowledging our faults and beseeching Him so to make us feel that uh, feel them that we may learn more and more to hate them, and so to help us number them that we uh, that we unmask all the hypocrisy that lies within us. And let us not become complacent, but let us seek instead the remedies which God provides so that with all sobriety we look to the heavenly life, passing so speedily through this transitory world that we are not ensnared by the things which commonly hinder us and which turn us from the path of salvation. May we continually advance until freed from all the corruptions of our flesh, God clothes us with the heavenly glory for which we yearn. And that's Calvin's sermon on First Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I'll read it again. Likewise, also let women dress decently, with modesty and discretion, not with braided hair or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with clothes suitable to women who by good works show their fear of God. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Let her remain silent. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to honor you both in our outward attire, what we wear, and the appearance that we put forward of ourselves before others. But Father, we pray as well that you would guard our hearts, uh, our pride, uh, that we would not be given over to Um, boasting in ourselves whether that would be um, expressed in physical dress or not and we pray that you would enable us to take your word to heart and not be offended when it confronts us and and rebukes us but rather to receive it as a loving word that would shape us uh, that would confront us in our sin drive us to Christ and then shape us in holiness that we might glorify you and be a gift of edification to your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.